Welcome to another episode of the podcast called Washington Our Home, dedicated to discovering and sharing stories about the history, heritage, and culture of the greatest state in the lower 48. I'm your fearless field guide, Eric Ebel, and today we're going in search of the only ship in Washington that was said to fly over the waves. Who built her? How fast did she really go? And how did she come to meet her demise on the banks of the Columbia River? Learn the answers to those questions and many more in this episode of Washington, Our Home. There are dozens of things to see and do on the Lewis and Clark Trail Highway in southwest Washington, as I learned in my travels back in 2016. But surely one of the most unique lies just outside a tiny town called Napton on the northern bank of the Columbia River. If you're headed west from Napton Cove toward the Astoria Megler Bridge, which, by the way, takes you on a terrifying ascent into the skies above Oregon before returning you white-knuckled to Earth, you might spot a rusty barge parked in a shallow bay called Hungry Harbor. Depending on the tide, the barge is either beached in the sand or floating just offshore, tethered to the bank by an unseen cable. There is something else very interesting about this harbor that caused me to stop and snap a few pictures. I thought I'd look it up on the internet when I got home. What I learned was yet another stunning bit of Washington State history, that found its final resting place near the mouth of the mighty Columbia. The rusty barge is interesting enough, tied up to the shoreline and in all likelihood unusable. It makes for a great photo opportunity with the Columbia River in the background, photos which you can see at Washington Our Home's Flickr and Pinterest pages. But take a few moments to look around closely, and you'll soon see the vacant hull of another wrecked ship, half buried in the muck just a few hundred yards away. You can't really get to it without violating the keep out and no trespassing signs spray painted on particle board, so getting a quality photo is difficult. But what you're looking at is actually all that remains of what was, in its time, the world's largest hydrofoil, the USS Plainview, also known as the ship that flies. <laughs> So what is a hydrofoil? And what's the difference between that and a hydroplane? Well, a hydrofoil is a lifting surface, or foil, that operates in the water. They're similar in appearance and purpose to aerofoils, which are used by airplanes. They look kind of like small horizontal wings, or maybe the spoiler on the back of a Honda Civic street racer. Boats that use hydrofoil technology are simply termed hydrofoils. And as they gain speed, the hydrofoils lift the boat's hull out of the water, decreasing drag and allowing greater speeds. Italian inventor Enrico Forlanani began work on hydrofoils in 1898 and obtained patents in Britain and the United States for his ideas and designs. The early 1900s saw the invention of the hydroplane, which is a fast motorboat, where the hull shape is such that the weight of the boat is supported by planing forces rather than just buoyancy. A key aspect of hydroplanes is that they use the water for lift rather than floating like most other boats. When traveling at high speed, water is forced downward by the bottom of the boat's hull. The water therefore exerts an equal and opposite force upward, lifting the vast majority of the hull out of the water. This process, happening at the surface of the water, is known as planing. Think of a rock skipping across a lake. The forward motion and the speed of the flat surface on the rock cause it to rise up out of the water rather than sinking like, well, like a stone. 
Alexander Graham Bell, father of the modern telephone, considered the invention of the hydroplane a very significant achievement. He began to sketch his own concepts of hydrofoil boats based on Forlanini's work. With his chief engineer, Casey Baldwin, Bell began hydrofoil experiments in the summer of 1908, culminating in Bell's invention, the Hydrodome No. 4, or HD4 for short. You can find photos of this thing online, and there's a replica of it at the Alexander Graham Bell Museum in Nova Scotia. It looks like a cross between a modern space rocket laid down horizontally and something out of a Jules Verne novel. The hydrofoil achieved a top speed of 54 miles an hour, accelerating rapidly, taking waves without difficulty, steering well, and showing good stability. Bell reported his findings to the United States Navy, which granted him new, more powerful engines, and on September 9, 1919, the HD-4 set a world marine speed record of 71 miles per hour. In the early 1950s, an English couple built a jet-powered hydrofoil in an attempt to beat that record. However, tests would prove that designers had faced an engineering phenomenon that limits the top speed of even modern hydrofoils, cavitation. Cavitation is the formation of vapor cavities in liquid, bubbles essentially, but unlike common bubbles caused by surface air being trapped underwater, these bubbles are the consequence of forces acting upon the liquid. It usually occurs when a liquid is subjected to rapid changes of pressure that cause the formation of cavities in the liquid where the pressure is relatively low. When subjected to higher pressure, the voids implode and can generate an intense shock wave. Cavitation is a significant cause of wear in some engineering contexts. Collapsing voids that implode near a metal surface cause cyclic stress through repeated implosion. One after another, after another, after another. Cavitation results in surface fatigue of the metal and a disruption in the lift created by the foils as they move through the water. At speeds above 69 miles per hour, cavitation begins bending the lifting foil, which is an obviously undesired occurrence. In devices such as propellers and pumps, cavitation causes a great deal of noise, damage to components, vibrations, and a loss of efficiency. Anybody who saw the hunt for Red October might remember that cavitation was a potentially fatal condition for submarines, as the noise created by cavitation increases the chance of being detected by the enemy's sonar. Despite the drawback cavitation could cause at higher speeds, hydrofoil development continued on into the 1940s, when the German military designed and built a 17-ton craft for use as a mine layer. Dubbed the VS-6 hydrofoil, it was tested in the Baltic Sea, producing speeds of 47 knots, which is 54 miles per hour. Tested against the Nazis' standard E-boat over the next three years, it performed well, but it was never brought into full production. Being faster, it could carry a higher payload and was capable of traveling over minefields, but was prone to damage and a lot noisier. A German engineer named Hans von Schertel, who had been working on hydrofoil technology, was captured by the Russians. After the war, since Germany was restricted from advancing certain technologies, such as building fast boats, Schertel instead went to Switzerland, where he established the Supramar Company. In 1952, Supramar launched the first commercial hydrofoil, the PT-10, Frezia de Oro, or Golden Arrow. The PT-10 ferried up to 32 passengers between Switzerland and Italy and traveled 35 knots, which is about 40 miles per hour. During the same period, the Soviet Union, likely drawing on the knowledge stolen from von Schertel, experimented extensively with hydrofoils, 
constructing hydrofoil riverboats and ferries with streamlined designs during the Cold War period and on into the 1980s. One of the most successful Soviet designer inventors in this area was Rostislav Alexiev, who some consider the father of modern hydrofoil due to his 1950s-era high-speed hydrofoil designs. It was likely due to the Cold War that America began flirting with hydrofoil technology. The U.S. Navy began experiments with hydrofoils in the mid-1950s. The experimental craft Hydrofoil No. 4, or XCH4 for short, was designed by William Carl and exceeded speeds of 56 knots, or 65 miles per hour. In the next decade, the U.S. Navy manufactured a small number of combat hydrofoils, which were fast and well-armed. Construction reached its peak, however, in the 1960s and 70s, and it was during this time that the USS Plainview, the largest hydrofoil in the world, was born. Let's take a pause from learning about the USS Plainview for just a few minutes and institute something I'm kicking off here at the Washington Our Home podcast. It's trivia time. I'm going to pose a few questions related in one way or another to today's topic, and you can find out how well you did at the end of the episode. Sound good? Here are today's questions based on the peak period of hydrofoil production, the 1960s and 1970s. Question 1. In the mid-1960s, there were how many different versions of the Washington State Seal in use? In the mid-1960s, how many different versions of the Washington State Seal were in use? You'll remember the Washington State Seal was created by a jeweler named Talcott uh, in the Olympia area by placing a silver dollar over an inkwell and making the circles, and he put a postage stamp right dead center that had a picture of George Washington's face on it. Uh, and that was what eventually became the Washington State Seal. Question two. What Washington politician was almost picked as John F. Kennedy's vice presidential running mate? Again, Washington State politician from the 1960s who almost became vice president of the United States if it weren't for that darn Lyndon Baines Johnson. Question three. Indira Gandhi visited Pasco in 1962. At which college did she lecture? Indira Gandhi visited Pasco, Washington in 1962 and spoke at one of their colleges in the area. Which one was it? Find out later in this episode. And finally, question four. The last stoplight on Interstate 5 was... Yes, stoplight on Interstate 5 was removed in 1969 in what city? Think you know? Keep listening through to the end to find out if you're right. Now, back to the story of the USS Plainview, the ship that flew. The USS Plainview had the call sign AGEH-1, and it was in its time the world's largest hydrofoil. Named for the cities of both Plainview, New York, and Plainview, Texas, she was also the United States Navy's first hydrofoil research ship. The Plainview was laid down on May 8, 1964, by the Lockheed Shipbuilding and Construction Company out of good old Seattle, Washington. She was launched on June 28, 1965, and placed into official naval service four years later, on March 3, 1969. Propulsion consisted of two General Electric LM1500 free-turbine turboshaft engines, which were derivatives of the J-79 turbojets used in the F-4 Phantom aircraft. 
but during conventional operations, she was driven by two diesel engines. Her home port was Bremerton, Washington, and her mission was to carry out long-range experimental programs to evaluate the design principles of hydrofoils and to develop and evaluate tactics and doctrine for hydrofoils, particularly in anti-submarine warfare, and help determine the feasibility of hydrofoil operations on the high seas. Essentially, they built a hydrofoil specifically to test how good hydrofoils would do in a combat situation. Now, here are some fast facts for those of you boat nuts out there. Here are the specs on the USS Plainview. Displacement, 310 tons. Length, 220 feet 6 inches. Beam, 40 feet 5 inches. Draft, 24 feet 4 inches. Speed, 40 to 50 knots. She had a complement of 20. Armament, none. Propulsion, two diesel engines for conventional operations, two gas turbine engines for hydroplane operations. The officers in charge of the USS Plainview from December 1969 to July 1970 was Lieutenant Stephen James Dewitch. July 1970 to 73, Lieutenant William John Erickson. July 1973 to 1974, Lieutenant Edmund B. Wolin. 1974 to 1976, Lieutenant Frank W. Hudson, Jr. And 1976 to 1978, Lieutenant Vic H. Ackley. The Plainview was once the most advanced ship in the United States Navy and was able to rise out of the water on three foils, ten feet above the waves. The Kennedy administration needed a long-range patrol boat that could maintain the same speed as a Russian nuclear sub, even in bad weather. However, as an experimental prototype for the Navy, it turned out to be a technological dead end. Since the 1970s, there has been a steady decline in the use and popularity of hydrofoils for leisure, military, and commercial passenger transport use. There are a number of reasons for this. Hydrofoils are sensitive to impacts with floating objects and marine animals. On hitting something, a hydrofoil boat may actually fall off the foils, which can create all kinds of problems. The foils themselves have sharp edges, but these edges can fatally injure marine animals like whales if they're struck. Hydrofoils are also expensive to build, sometimes costing about three times the price of an equivalent catamaran vessel. The increased costs are not always economically justifiable by consumers. It's also a very conservative industry. Hydrofoils are still considered exotic by many commercial operators of high-speed craft, and many won't risk trying such exotic vessels when they have no experience operating them. And hydrofoils are technically complex and require high maintenance, which is ultimately what put an end to military hydrofoil projects. The U.S. Navy developed some of the most technologically advanced hydrofoils ever in existence, but could not make the complex propulsion systems and ride control reliable. And this eventually led to the suspension of the hydrofoil program. By 1978, the Plainview had evidently served her purpose and was decommissioned by the U.S. Navy at 10.30 a.m. on September 22nd at Pier 7, Puget Sound Naval Shipyard. She was struck from the Naval Vessel Register on September 30, 1978, and was sold for scrapping by the Defense Reutilization and Marketing Service General Metals on the Hylabas Waterway in Tacoma. After they'd stripped her of everything usable, Plainview was brought to Astoria, Oregon by Lowell Stanbaugh, an Astoria boat builder. For 10 years, she sat by his shop on the shore of Young's Bay, waiting to be converted into a fish processing station. The changing fortunes of the salmon industry, however, 
forced Stanbaugh to move his shop, so he towed the plane view across to the Washington side and beached it near Hungry Harbor. She was sold for scrap in 2004, and nothing but her rusted hull remains. Perhaps the most intriguing thing I found while researching this ship is a YouTube video of the plane view in full operation. The amazing footage shows the then-brand-new Space Needle in the background as the plane view motors out onto Elliott Bay and takes off, flying low and heavy over the water like a majestic pelican. Then you see pictures of the plane view being scavenged using the very same rusty barge that still stands guard over her remains. Here's some of the audio from that 1960s-era footage of the plane view in her heyday. This is the plane view, the ship that flies. Built by Lockheed Shipbuilding and Construction Company for the U.S. Navy's Ship Systems Command. 220 feet long, displacing 300 tons, she's the world's largest hydrofoil vessel. Plainview's bridge looks very much like the cockpit of a modern airliner. And this is not the only aerospace feature the Lockheed Aircraft Corporation's Seattle-based firm has borrowed to bring into being the world's largest military aluminum vessel. The two midships foils and the stern foil have their own special aerodynamic, or in this case, hydrodynamic shape. An aircraft-type autopilot assists the man at the controls. Inputs come from special instrumentation, including sensors which report the height above the surface of the sea. In a hull-borne mode, 600-horsepower diesel engines drive large outboard-type units. The stern foil serves as a rudder and stabilizer. When the foils are lowered, the hull-borne propulsion units are raised. At the extremities of special high-strength steel struts 28 feet long, the two midships foils carry the world's largest titanium propellers. The foils, also of special high-strength steel, are 26 feet in width. They can be banked or controlled, much as the flaps and tail surfaces of an aircraft. As the ship picks up speed, the foils provide the lift which will raise the ship high above the surface of the sea. The foils are always completely submerged and provide a stable, level platform even in rough water. Her Navy crew of 20, including four officers, in keeping with Navy tradition, eat well. There is a crew's mess area with tables and bookshelves adjacent to the galley. And as you can imagine, the coffee pot is always ready and in continual demand. As the first of a kind and one of a kind, Plainview has a major role in the Navy's hydrofoil program. This broad effort is investigating different types of propulsion and hydrofoils in various sizes. Of these, naturally, Plainview is the largest. These tests will help the Navy to determine the feasibility of using hydrofoil vessels of this large size in a variety of roles and missions. These potential duties include, among others, reconnaissance, high-speed personnel transport, and anti-submarine tactics against today's swift undersea craft. The rain and wind of a Puget Sound storm is no deterrent to Plainview, which just rises above the occasion, or at least above the choppy waters. As Plainview and her crew learn to know each other, this largest and most powerful hydrofoil vessel will add to the U.S. Navy's knowledge and capability to meet the challenge of the sea, as well as the threat of potential enemies. Incorporating the best of the state-of-the-art in high-speed ocean transport, marine and aerospace technology, Plainview points the way to a new dawn in Navy ships. As the son of two Navy veterans and an Army veteran myself, 
I'd like to salute the Plainview for her service to America and hope that someday she can be laid to rest the right way. As an interesting side note, when I wrote the blog post about the USS Plainview, I got a number of comments from people who either served on the ship or worked at the boatyard during its construction. Marco Blasny writes that every time it got to a hundred knots it would start rattling and they'd have to go back and figure out why. We never did, he writes. My guess would be cavitation, and a later post questions the accuracy of the 100 knots claim, saying it never did 100 knots. It was closer to the low 60s. Richard Long writes that he was part of the decommissioning crew of the Plainview, and being a member of her crew was the high point of his naval career. And a 68-year-old Joe Cox writes, Are you sure the Plainview was built in 1964? When I was 17, my dad snuck me into the shipyard to make money for college tuition. That was June of 1966. My first job in the shipyard was working on the Plainview. I remember operating a 50-ton hydraulic router cutting out lightning holes in the aluminum framing. Other times I was operating a chipping gun taking out welds in the aluminum superstructure that were judged to be defective. Once I recall the wing wall of the dry dock where the Plainview was being worked on, filled with white hats from Lockheed in California. They were on a junket to see the hydrofoil. The cockpit of the Plainview was set up with seats and gauges and throttles, and each supervisor took a turn sitting in the pilot's seat. As I was a fairly good-sized kid, I also got overtime pay working through lunch one day to raise one of the foils with a chainfall. I did see the Plainview up on its foils one time on Elliott Bay and Puget Sound. It was quite a sight. Thanks to everybody who posted comments on the blog article, it's extra fascinating to hear stories from people who were actually there when the USS Plainview took her first flight over the waves of Puget Sound. That wraps up this podcast of the USS Plainview, the ship that flew. Thank you so much for listening, and a special thanks to navsource.org and hullnumber.com for providing some great background details. If you're streaming this online, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of the Washington Our Home podcast. You can find links to do that, as well as to my Twitter, my Facebook, and my Instagram accounts, all on the website, www.washingtonourhome.com. If you're looking to share your state pride, check out the Washington-themed gear available on the website, including clothing items, household stuff, posters and other wall art, and much more. Everything's available on the website, Washington Our Home. And now, at the end of the episode, here are the answers to this episode's trivia time questions. Again, these were all questions about the 1960s and 70s, the golden age of hydrofoils. Question one, in the mid-1960s, there were how many different versions of the Washington State seal in use? The answer is at least 24. Question two, what Washington politician was almost picked as John F. Kennedy's vice presidential running mate? That would be Henry M. Scoop Jackson. Question three, when Indira Gandhi visited Pasco in 1962, which college did she speak at? Columbia Basin College, a very fine institution. I visited that a couple of times. And question four, the last stoplight on Interstate 5 was removed in 1969 in Everett, Washington. Everett holds that unique distinction. So how'd you do? Need to bone up on your Washington State trivia for next time? Yeah, me too. I guess I'd better start reading my new Washington State trivia books, which I got at Half Price Books over the weekend. Looking forward to the next podcast episode, we're going to talk about an American hero named Bud Holland. He flew B-52s, but he was also known as an arrogant hot stick. It was 24 years ago 
that Bud Holland, my next door neighbor, crashed one of the biggest, most powerful aircraft ever built into a nuclear storage facility, leaving his kids fatherless and his wife a widow. With more than 5,000 flight hours under his belt, U.S. Air Force Colonel Bud Holland took his last flight on June 24, 1994. And we're going to look at his life and the lessons learned in the next episode of Washington, Our Home. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Eric Ebel, and I'll see you somewhere in Washington.